Welcome to the Cornerstone Baptist Church podcast. My name is Justin Wheeler. I am the preaching pastor for Cornerstone. And today we are in week 27 of our journey through the Heidelberg Catechism. Today I'm going to be talking to you about questions 72, 73, and 74. And, and this week we're still on the subject of baptism. We've been talking about uh, ordinances or what some call sacraments for the last three weeks. Um, last week we started on the subject of baptism, and this week we're going to round it off. Um, and, and here's the first time, really, that we're going to take a major detour from what the Heidelberg has to say. Now, we've been working through this catechism over the year, right? So far, um, since January 1 of 2019. And, and we've hit a few questions along the way that kind of made us scratch our heads. But truly, on the whole, it, it's been really helpful. Uh, it's been very encouraging, very uh, informative. And that's why we're doing this as a church. But I'll I just be honest with you. From day one, I knew that we were going to reach a few points along the way where our understanding as a church and, and my understanding as uh, a Baptist pastor, uh, my understanding of certain doctrines are going to be quite different from what the Heidelberg teaches. I mean, we knew this was coming, and today we've really come to the first point where there's a major deviation between what Heidelberg teaches and what we believe. Uh, and we see that deviation in question 74. And so I, I know we've got to do 72 and 73, but let me just go ahead and bring this up. Here's what question 74 asks Are infants also to be baptized? And the answer is yes, at least from their perspective. But I and my fellow Credo Baptist brothers and sisters would answer that question with a clear and resounding no. It is not newborn babies that we see being baptized in the New Testament, but only newborn believers in Christ. And so today, we're going to briefly address the differences between our position a credo-baptist position, and the pedo-baptist position. And I'm also going to reword question 74 and ask who can be baptized. But we're not going to skip over questions 72 and 73. So let's get right at, into uh, those two questions. Number 72. Is then the outward washing with water itself the washing away of sins? And the answer is no. For only the blood of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit cleanses us from all sin. Now, part of the reason this question is necessary is because of something we talked about a little bit last week. It's because of the difficulty we have with understanding the interplay and connection between spiritual realities and physical realities. Uh, a few weeks ago, I quoted Matthew Henry, uh, and I love this quote. Here's what he said. Uh, when He said, We live in a world of sense not yet in a world of spirits. And because we therefore find it hard to look above the things that are seen, we are directed in a sacrament to look through them to those things that are not seen, which the sacraments represent. Now, I love what, what Henry says there. He, he's, he's identifying with the fact that we live in a world of the five senses. We, we understand what we can see, hear, taste, touch, and smell. But there's another world that the Bible opens up to us. It's the world that is unseen. It's the world of the spirits, the spiritual world, if you will. And one of the ways that God has helped us 
to understand some of those spiritual realities because we're so bound by our understanding of the the physical reality is that God has given us, um, He's taught us, He's revealed things to us, but He's also given us these sacraments, these ordinances to help us to see the connection between the spiritual realities and a physical world. And so, this is... These things are compelling. They bring clarity uh, between things that are hard for us to understand. God has given these ordinances to us to help us to see the connections more clearly. And, and baptism is a, 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 an example of that. The water of baptism is a physical experience. It does not actually wash away and cleanse our hearts from the effects of sin. That's our spiritual need. But baptism is a physical sign that points to a spiritual reality. Baptism is a sign and symbol of that cleansing uh, of sin that we need, but it actually doesn't work to cleanse us from sin. When a person is baptized, they're declaring themselves to be uh, believers in Christ. They're united with Jesus. The picture of baptism is of one of the individual identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And in this way, baptism saves us, not because there's this magical cleansing of sin in the, in the water itself, but because we are trusting in the work of Christ to cleanse us from sin. And so baptism is it's like an appeal. We are appealing to God that we are uh, declaring that what happened to Jesus has, has served to affect us. Our baptism is an appeal uh, to God that we are trusting in what he has provided to save us from judgment. Tom Schreiner, who's written a wonderful book on baptism, he says this. He says, The waters of baptism, like the waters of the flood, referring back to Genesis 6, demonstrate that destruction is at hand. But believers are rescued from these waters in that they are baptized with Christ, who has also emerged from the waters of death through His resurrection. And so we're being united with Him, and we're displaying that union through our baptism. The, the waters don't actually save. The water doesn't actually wash away our sin, but it is a symbol of our union with Jesus. So baptism is not an exercise of trusting in the water to cleanse us and save us. It is an exercise of displaying our trust in Jesus and the Spirit of God to save us and cleanse us. Now, question 73 is going to follow right on the heels of this, but it's going to draw attention to a particular phrase that we see in the New Testament. Here's question 73. Why then does the Holy Spirit call baptism the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sins? Right. So the question before was, does the water wash away our sin? Well, no, it doesn't. It just shows our union. Well, here's the question. Well, then why does the Word of God say this? And the answer is this. God speaks this way for good reason. He wants to teach us that the blood and Spirit of Christ wash away our sins just as uh, water washes away dirt from our bodies. So one is a spiritual reality. The blood of Christ washes away our sin. Another is a physical example uh, that points to that spiritual reality, and it's how water actually cleanses our bodies. But the answer goes on. But more important... God wants to assure us by this divine pledge and sign that the washing away of our sins um, spiritually is as real as physical washing with water. Now, this question and answer are addressing some of the things that we've already talked about a little bit, but it's, it's actually addressing the language that Paul uses in Titus 3 when he writes this. 
Titus 3 and verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Now, um, one of the interesting things to point out from this verse is that water baptism is not mentioned in it at all. Um, there's a reference to washing. And, and because of that reference to washing in a general sense, um, people have often associated it with baptism and what actually occurs in baptism. But the main point of this text is not the physical washing of regeneration, new birth, but the work of the Holy Spirit to bring about that new birth in our hearts. Um, the, the Spirit does this. It's by His own mercy. The Spirit is the one who brings about the washing of regeneration and the renewal that we need. So the Catechism really does a great job in answering this question and showing the connection between the physical and the spiritual. The blood of the and Spirit of Christ wash away our sins just as water washes away dirt from our bodies. But now, let's look at the final question of the week, and it's one that uh, we're going to have to spend some time on because it's going to give us a few problems, right? So, question 74. Are infants also to be baptized? Well, the answer to the, from Heidelberg is this. Yes, but listen to the theology in the answer. Infants, as well as adults, are in God's covenant, and are his people. Now, I would completely disagree with that. They, no less than adults, are promised the forgiveness of sin through Christ's blood and the Holy Spirit who produces faith. I would disagree with that as well. Therefore, by baptism, the mark of the covenant, infants should be received into the Christian church and should be distinguished from the children of unbelievers. I would disagree with that statement also. And then the final statement, this was done in the Old Testament by circumcision, which was replaced in the New Testament by baptism. Now, I would agree with a part of that last statement, but on the whole, I disagree with this statement uh, and this answer fundamentally. Uh, and, and now let me explain why. I, I not only think that the question is wrongly worded. It's the wrong question, but I disagree with the answer almost entirely. Those who hold to a paedo-baptist view, they do so because of their understanding of the continuity between the covenant that God made with His people in the Old Testament and the covenant that God has made with His people in the New Testament. They would agree that there are some significant differences between these two covenants and their signs, but they see them as being on something of a continuum. Now, let me give you a couple of quotes from Stephen Willem where he works to explain what I'm talking about. Here's what he says. Willem writes, The, the Reformed Pado-Baptist conception of the covenant of grace may be defined in a number of ways, but at its heart it is understood as God's sovereign, gracious choice by which He chooses, chooses to save a people for Himself by providing sinners life and salvation through the last Adam, the covenantal head of his people, the Lord Jesus Christ, as well as all that is necessary to bring the elect to saving faith by the effectual work of the Holy Spirit. Um, and then he goes on and he says this, given that the covenant of grace is an organic unity across the ages, this entails, so the argument goes, that the people of God, 
Israel and the church are essentially one people in nature and structure. And that the covenant signs, circumcision for the Old Testament uh, Israelites, baptism for the New Testament church, are also essentially one especially in regard to the spiritual significance of those signs. Furthermore, he goes on, Reformed Paedo-Baptists argue that since one cannot find any repeal in the New Testament of the Old Testament command um, to place the sign of the covenant of grace upon covenant children, so the same practice should continue today in the church, given the underlying unity of the covenant across the ages. In a nutshell, that is the Reformed covenantal argument for infant baptism. Now, I think Wellam has done a great job, and he said so much more. He's written books on this. He's written much online. You can find it on blogs and various things. Um, He's done a good job of just trying to summarize why Paedo-Baptists believe what they believe. They ultimately believe that within the covenants that God has made with His people, there's this continuing ethic of grace that unites those two covenants in specific ways, the people of God and the the covenantal signs. And because the the New Testament hasn't uh, expressly forbidden the continuity of those things, um, we should just continue on. The new sign of the covenant of Uh, Christ, our covenant with Christ is baptism. And therefore, in the same way that infants were circumcised, infants should be baptized. Well, that's the the framework. But here's the deal. This framework, which gives rise to this paedo-baptist thinking, um, it it doesn't answer all of the questions that, that come about. And I don't think it's consistently um, evidenced in the New Testament that we should continue to do things in this way. Uh, Reformed covenant theology is very helpful, and it's true in many of its points, but I think it gets some things wrong. I think there is a significant difference between the Old and the New Covenants, and that Paedo-Baptists are wrong to see the two on such a strict continuum. Now, I'm sorry, for those of you who you just want to be encouraged and you just want to be helped, this might be a little deep for you, but I want to help you understand why I'm deviating from this catechism that I have found and we have found so helpful throughout this year. This podcast is going to be really long, but I want to go through some points of disagreement. Um, So I'm just going to stick to something that we've already begun talking about. I want to talk about the difference between the spiritual and the physical. Okay, so the members of the Old Covenant, they were distinguished by their physical connection to Abraham. They were descendants. They were blood relatives. And as such, they received the sign of being part of the covenant that God made with Abraham. Circumcision was that sign, and and male children were circumcised on the eighth day to show the continuity, their connection with Abraham and the covenant God made with him. Oddly enough, only the male children were to receive that sign. So that's, uh, that's the physical reality there. But when we come to the new covenant, we see that its members are distinguished not by our physical connection, but by our spiritual rebirth. I mean, just think about what Jesus taught in John 3. He said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, the guy he was talking to, said to him, Well, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, unless one is born of water, and and that's referring to being born um, through a natural birth from the mother's womb, being born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, 
that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So those who are members of the new covenant, those who are to receive the sign of the new covenant, are those who have been born again by the Holy Spirit. And that is what we see throughout the throughout the New Testament and exclusively in the New Testament. The gospel is proclaimed. Men and women believe in Christ and turn from their sin, and then they are baptized and brought into fellowship with, with the community of faith. So there are fundamental differences between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, between the Old Covenant sign and the New Covenant sign, and how these things are to be done. And we see that throughout the Scriptures. Now, what we're going to see as we look into, I'm going to show you a couple of passages of Scripture, is that at no point is there any deviation from this pattern of baptizing disciples only. And from this in the New Testament, we must conclude that baptism is to be, not only was it only administered in this way, but it is to be administered only to those who give a credible profession of faith in Christ. In other words, those who've been born of the Spirit. So here's Acts 2. The first sermon that was preached after the ascension of Christ is recorded for us in Acts 2. Peter's filled with the Holy Spirit. He stands with boldness. He proclaims the gospel of Christ. And in his sermon, after his sermon, we read this, those who received his word were baptized. So they heard the message of Christ. They received, they accepted the message of Christ. And we know that the Holy Spirit opened their eyes and their hearts to help them understand and see this. And they received this message for themselves, and then they received the sign of baptism. They were part of this new covenant community. Uh, in Acts chapter 8, the next time we see people being baptized, it comes in Acts 8, verse 12. And in this passage, Philip, um, who at the time, Philip was a deacon, he's preaching the gospel in Samaria, and this is what we read. It says, But when they believed... Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So Philip preached the good news, they believed this good news, and then they were baptized, both men and women. And when they believed, they were baptized. So again, faith precedes baptism. Now this is just a, a common sign that we see Throughout the New Testament, we're going to continue to see it. In Acts chapter 10, we see Peter's preaching, again, the gospel, and he's in Cornelius' household. He's preaching, and it says this, The Holy Spirit fell on all those who heard the word. So they, he was preaching. They were hearing the word. The Holy Spirit fell on them. And then afterwards, everyone who was present, having heard the word and having received the Holy Spirit, they began speaking in tongues. And then Peter says, can anyone withhold water for baptizing? These people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And so again, you see this form. They were hearing the gospel. The Holy Spirit brought life into them. They received the message of uh, the gospel, the, the message of salvation through Christ, and then they were baptized. In, in Acts chapter 16, I only have a few more. In Acts 16, we see two instances of believer's baptism. The first involves a woman named Lydia, um, and the second involves the Philippian jailer. And there's a wonderful story about, um, well, it's not necessarily wonderful for Paul. It, it's, it's wonderful in this, the fact that it's fantastic in what happens, there's miracles that are taking place. But um, Paul is in prison, um, and in the middle of the night, he's singing hymns, and they're praying, and and the the spirit of God comes, and there's an earthquake, and the chains fall off of the prisoners. The the prison guard runs in. He's you know about to take his own life. 
because he's going to die, that all these prisoners are, are escaped, but they haven't escaped. They're there. And Paul explains to him what is taking place. He preaches the gospel to him. And the Philippian jailer says, what must I do to be saved? He's heard the message. He's convicted in his heart. He receives the message of the gospel. And then later on, uh, he's baptized. Uh, In Acts chapter 16, verse 31 through 33, we read this. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He, He asked, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Now, now there's a phrase in here uh, that I want to address because it is used by Paedo-Baptists over the years. It's been used to support the baptizing of infants. And it's where we read um, that the, the jailer's household was baptized. Now, Paedo-Baptists argue that it is possible to infer from this phrase that unbelieving children were part of these households, and therefore it's safe for them to assume that the early church practiced infant baptism. But the problem with this is that there is no biblical evidence to support the claim. There is no text in the Gospels, the book of Acts, or the epistles that gives us warrant to believe that the baptism of anyone other than a converted believer in Christ was the common practice of the early church. In fact, if we are to make sense out of you know, the baptism of you know, everyone in the household, then we must let Scripture interpret Scripture. And we can expect that if an entire household is baptized, it's because an entire household heard the gospel, received the Spirit of God, and believed the gospel because that is the consistent witness of the New Testament. And just so we're clear on this issue, Baptists and Presbyterians agree that there is no express command in Scripture at all that we baptize infants. In fact, a paedo-baptist by the name of John Murray, a wonderful theologian, and I'm certain that he was a wonderful man. He's since gone on to be with the Lord. He wrote this, One of the most persuasive objections, and one which closes the argument for a great many people, is that there is no express command to baptize infants and no record in the New Testament of a clear case of infant baptism. The evidence for infant baptism, he says, falls into the category of good and necessary inference, and it is therefore quite indefensible to demand that the evidence required must be in the category of express command or explicit instance. Now, I applaud Murray for his honesty here, but I question his conclusions. If the Bible gives no warrant to believe a proposed doctrine, and that doctrine has no credibility. And so for me, it's a matter of my conscience being bound to the plain teaching of God's Word. And that's where we stand as a church, and I hope that's where you stand as well. The consistent witness of the New Testament and the command of Christ is that we baptize only those who have have received Christ by faith. They are trusting in the saving benefits of Christ's atoning work, and they have become His faithful disciples. The, the, the New Testament says nothing about baptizing infants, and therefore I reject the Heidelberg's question 74. And we as a church, um, though we reject that doctrine, we, we want to show proper respect um, to other brothers who disagree with us. But we, we consider this a fellowship issue, uh, meaning we gather together as a church and we allow into membership only those who have been 
baptized in a way that is consistent with the teaching of the New Testament. So while we can fellowship and and heartily recommend and appreciate and enjoy uh, our fellowship with Pado Baptist brothers, we don't share um, membership with them. And so here's what I want to do. Uh, I've said a lot, and I've, uh, there's so much more that can be said. Uh, but I want to I want to rephrase question 74. I want to ask it this way: Who then should be baptized? And here's the answer that comes from the Baptist Catechism: Those who, having been born of God's Spirit, repent of their sins and believe in Jesus Christ for salvation. In other words, only believers should be baptized. Again, there's plenty more that can be said, but I hope that this portion of the conversation has been helpful to you. Now, next week, we're going to continue our study of this ordinance, of the ordinances. We're going to begin looking at the Lord's Supper. And I hope that you'll join me again next week as we look at Lord's Day 28, questions 75, 76, and 77. Now, if you want to learn more about Cornerstone Baptist Church, you can find us online at cornerstonewiley.org. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at CBCWiley. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cornerstonewiley. You can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Google Play to stay up to date on all the new content. Thank you so much for listening.